Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I am here with Ezra Klein. I I think what we really want to talk about today is the fiscal stimulus talks that may or may not be happening and sort of what that means for the American economy, uh, for for sort of the political outlook for next year. Uh, But first, we are recording on Thursday, uh, the day after the vice presidential debate. Um, and, And I do think we should talk some about it. I mean, it would be it would be really weird. I think, occurrence in electoral politics if a vice presidential debate turned out to be uh, important for the outcome of the election. That would be a a strange thought process on the part of of people's minds. And then I I also didn't think that anything particularly noteworthy even happened at the debate. I mean, there were no big gaffes by either candidate. There was no reason anyone who came into it with strong feeling. Like, A, I don't think anybody will change their minds. And B, on the merits, I don't think anything happened that should cause anyone to change their minds. Like, if you looking around think Donald Trump is doing a good job, it's it's not like Kamala Harris would have talked you out of that. Uh, Conversely, like, if you think he's doing a bad job, you know, Mike, Mike Pence is a calmer persona. But like it, it is what it is. Uh, but but you you had a sort of interesting observation about what that uh, sort of like what the dullness of the debate signifies for the future. Let, let me make two arguments here, um, both in the direction of this is a more important debate than it's being given credit for. And, and so one is it this is the first vice presidential debate in in quite a few decades where it is clear that we may be seeing a preview of the next presidential debate. Um, Now, it it turned out to be that it was true that Joe Biden would eventually become the Democratic nominee for president. But in 2012, it was not expected that that would happen. So when Biden and Paul Ryan met on the stage, uh, it didn't seem likely that we were going to see that matchup in uh, uh, 2016. 
And similarly, Dick Cheney was understood that to not be a successor to, to George W. Bush, as you really, uh, at some level, have to go back to Al Gore, um, to, to where you're really seeing a pretty clear successor uh, at, at the vice presidential debate. And at the same time, I'm somebody who thinks Mike Pence is underrated in the possibility that he will follow Donald Trump as a presidential nominee, that he has a real capacity potentially to, on the one hand, have served loyally enough to Donald Trump to, to be acceptable to that faction, and on the other hand, be quite acceptable to the sort of more traditional factions of the Republican Party, which he's been a, a foot soldier in for a long time, from the evangelical movement to the Koch brother network. Um, and so I think it's very possible that in 2024, Joe Biden, if he wins in 2020, doesn't run for re-election, and we actually see a rerun of this debate. So as a as a possible view into our future, I think it is useful to, to just see how these two match up and and how they collide with each other. But the other thing that was striking about it is that if you've listened to the weeds or just paid attention to politics for the past couple of years, this has been a period of extraordinary ideological volatility and, and, and fermentation. So on the Republican side, you have a rise of a much more confident populist right. Um, some people call that Trumpism, but it has a lot of other tributaries too, things like Orrin Cass's American Compass Group, um, you know, the Josh Hawley's and Tom Cotton's of the world. There's a lot going on in terms of busting the traditional boundaries of what a Republican was in, let's call it, you know, 2012. Um, on the other side, there's been this real rise of democratic socialism, you know, the rise of the Bernie Sanders movement, um, a much more expansive approach on uh, race and, and 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 gender issues. There's been like the 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 party has moved on from Obamaism faster than one might expect, and all of that was basically absent at this debate. You saw, in a way, I think Pence and Harris are useful because they're much clearer, more coherent articulators of what they're tickets stand for and what their governing records actually are than the top of the ticket. Um, it is much more comprehensible what Joe Biden is saying and trying to do when Kamala Harris says it for him. And the same, to some degree, is true in Mike Pence, who describes uh, lies about the Trump record quite often, I mean, as Trump himself does, but also describes what it is they're doing and what it is their arguments are on things much more clearly than Donald Trump does himself, was not primarily just trying to, like— run a hundred interruptions, just knock Harris off her game. And just what you heard was a clash between a Democrat and Republican that felt to me like it could have taken place, you know, swapping in some issues and and, and swapping out some other ones like COVID really at any time over the past 10 or 20 years. Um, Mike Pence just argued as a pretty typical conservative who thinks Democrats are weak on national security and want to tax and spend too much. Um, Kamala Harris argued as a pretty typical Democrat who thinks Republicans want to take your health insurance away and, um, you know, like want to throw this country's racial and, and gender equity progress back, back decades or more. And it all felt very normal. I mean, down to the fact that Mike Pence seems to want to run against, and, and as does Donald Trump, uh, Biden and Harris as socialists, where they're primarily attacking them for holding positions that Bernie Sanders actually holds uh, in, in most cases, but that Biden and Harris don't, like banning fracking or abolishing private health insurance. And so it's just a very weird way in which I thought this debate contained within it the seeds of how you could imagine American politics having a much less divergent future uh, in, say, 2024 or 2028 than one might have predicted just living through the past four years. 
I think that's right. Although I, the the thing that I would say about Harris's presentation that is both normal but also different is that you know so so one thing you have happening in Democratic Party politics is sort of socialism, right? And and the uh, and another is like strong left social justice critiques. Um, and Harris... Great Awakening, I've heard yeah. somebody call it. Well, but, but in some ways, even beyond Great Awakening type stuff. But so so Harris is not either of those things, right? I mean, despite her DW nominate score, she is a very, like, conventional mainstream Democrat who does not push the sort of most outlandish ideas there. Uh, but at least before 2016, mainstream Democrats Right, not leftist Democrats, mainstream Democrats had a populist gear that they would invoke in their rhetoric, right? Whether that's Al Gore talking about the people versus the powerful, or, you know, uh, Barack Obama, like Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive, you know, attacking Mitt Romney's um, offshoring record, things like that. And Joe Biden is in that tradition. Right. In some ways, I mean, just like because he's old, right, like he calls back to that level of mainstream Democrats. John Kerry talking about closing down firehouses in Boston and opening them in in Baghdad and Benedict Arnold corporations. Um, Harris is much more closely aligned with the campaign that Hillary Clinton ran in 2016, which is – sands off a fair amount of that populist edge as well, right? And presents uh, the insurance issue as almost a technical problem with Republican plans, right? Like when she when she talks about losing pre-existing condition protections, there's no bad guy in that story that she tells, whereas a more traditional Democrat would have said that you know, they want to deregulate the insurance companies because, like, people hate insurance companies. And then you and I could come on the weeds and talk about how, like, insurance companies are a nice villain for Democrats, but, like, not really the issue in, in healthcare policy. Um, so, so Harris, you know, recapitulating Clinton 2016 has, I think, a more um, technocratic version of sort of mainstream Democratic Party politics, one that is closer to how frankly, like, I would talk about politics if I was just discussing, like, like if I wanted to explain it to you. Like, I don't think that kind of populist stuff is correct. Um, but when Joe Biden, like, flirted with this idea that, well, this campaign is about Scranton values versus Park Avenue values, um, like, I think that was like a good, that's a good line, right? Um, Biden is actually going to do really well on Park Avenue, like probably not as well as he does in some less affluent parts of New York City. Uh, But the actual alignment of voting in American politics is very heavily polarized along uh, levels of of cultural values. But I think it's important. I, I think if you just looked at the uh, Pence Harris debate, and you divorced it from the actual existing situation in the world. That basically it was a winning argument from Pence because Harris did not engage with like class identity in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, now you know in the real world, right? Like the first fifteen minutes of the debate is about the fact that hundreds of thousands of 
people have perished in this incredible mismanagement of the pandemic. Um, and like that's going to be decisive here. But I but I think it's something Democrats, particularly people like like Harris, who has not she has not run and won in like tough races and swing seats need to watch themselves on because it's a it's a style of politics that um it, it I think appeals to the people who do Democratic Party politics uh but is not exactly how Democrats win I have a couple of thoughts on this so one you you have a you had a much more negative take on Harris's performance than I did and I don't really trust my own take on any of these but the only polling I've seen is a CNN post uh debate poll where Harris had it 59-38. And so I'm just not sure there's such like a big like I I would be loath to say Mike Pence had a winning argument in a debate where most people thought he lost. So I think that's a point of disagreement we actually have on this. But but the other you know, thing I would, the, the first 15 minutes of the debate are not an important part of the debate. Uh you know, and I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to actually heavily weight what's clearly the most important issue. Well, it's not well, but we don't know from that. We don't know from that polling people just did that on the 15 minutes. Yeah. I think people I think people think Mike Pence's positions are bad. Um and so they don't. Yeah. So that's why I don't we'll think it's a literally a winning argument. I had a, I had a tweet last night that was just like I think Mike Pence is a very capable debater. I thought he tore Tim Kaine apart in 2016. Yes. Um and I thought him and Harris basically battled to a stalemate last night. And and I will note in terms of these polls in 2016 the CNN poll gave it to Pence 48-46 over Tim Kaine. So so people I mean are are willing to give a to give this to to, to Pence at times in in the debate watching community. Um but what what I think is both true and false about your sort of like bigger gloss on Harris is on the one hand, I disagree with some of the examples there. So I don't think Kerry had much of that populist gear. Um, he was nominated in a foreign policy election. You know, I'm John Kerry. I'm ready to serve. And he was very, very stilted as a populist. And it's one reason he. I mean, I will. I will uh, argue forever that John Kerry outperformed the fundamentals in that election and was not as bad a candidate as, as many people thought. But he really was quite poor, I think, when he was trying to argue as a populist, and it never, never felt right from him. And that's why the you know, speaks French and windsurfs and is married to a billionaire, you know, era stuff kind of stuck because it, it it seemed to communicate something about Kerry that people sensed. Whereas Joe Biden um, or Bill Clinton or some of these other candidates, I think, you know, John Edwards is Kerry's running mate in, in 2004, <laughs> and then much more so John, John Edwards as a candidate in 2008, yeah. really did play in that populist gear. And I think the thing you see from Harris is she's come up as a prosecutor, um, and then was a has been and is a Democratic senator from California for a, a limited period of time. She's not been in the Senate for a very long time. As you noted in your piece on the debate, which I thought was a sharp observation, when you are a candidate who is continuously running um, in California, you do not get a lot of experience talking to cross-pressured voters. So if we were like pulling out lines and the sort of the way of like John Kerry about firehouses. I mean, Harris had some of those. She's like, gets really mad. Um, she got really mad and really impassioned at Mike Pence about something about enforcing laws and talked about how she prosecuted the banks, which like the serious populist banking reporters I know don't feel Harris is as tough as uh, she says she is there. But nevertheless, like she will really push it. Like I'm the only person up here who's prosecuted the big banks. Um, but she, but her, like, the, the grounding of her politics isn't in those issues. Um, the grounding of her politics is in 
a justice-oriented um, way of thinking about the world, not just social justice as people talk about it online, but like justice, justice. Um, that's why she always does this like Kamala Harris for the people thing. And I think some of that is simply, um, you know, like politicians tend to know what they know. Uh, and over time, they develop a, a wider range of, of speeds they can hit. But Harris just has not done much as an economic campaigner. She has not campaigned a lot in in years and against electorates where she would have to be really, really good at talking about healthcare. And in fact, and I think people remember this, healthcare was an, uh, uh, an issue that particularly tripped her up in 2020. Um, so one of the things in the, in the Democratic primary, so one of the things that I think she often um, struggles with is actually right in that area, whereas one thing she's quite good at is talking about criminality. Um, and I thought it was surprising she didn't move into more of this when she was giving some of these rebuttals to Mike Pence last night. One thing she's pretty good at is, you know, Donald Trump and white supremacy. So all politicians have their specialties and all politicians have their weaknesses. And I kind of agree that Harris doesn't have a super strong populist mode, but I'm not sure how much that's just a little bit of inexperience on her part that she's learning. I think she's better at that mode than she was, say, two years ago. Um, but it's still... It's still not the grounding of her politics. I did want to ask you a question, though, about this, because you're somebody who, during the primary, thought um, Bernie Sanders was a, a strong candidate, as actually did I. Like, I think you and I basically agreed that he would consolidate Democrats just fine and, you know, would probably run um, pretty strongly against Donald Trump. But one thing you really see from Trump and Pence is a desire to run against Bernie Sanders that they have never quite uh, shifted gears from. They're continuously trying to hang the Bernie Sanders agenda on Harris or on Biden, and neither of them actually support that agenda. So they get into a long thing last night about whether or not Joe Biden supports banning fracking or whether or not he'll raise taxes on people. But like Bernie Sanders would have raised taxes on people, which is something I like about Bernie Sanders, and he would have banned fracking. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if any of this has made you think differently about the popularity of those issues, or is it simply that having somebody actually up there willing to defend those issues would either battle them to a draw or move them to popularity? You know, the, the fracking thing is tough. I mean, I think that was a bad call by Sanders. I don't think it actually fits with his theory of politics very well, and I think would have been real kind of problem for him unless he found a way to to weasel away from it. I mean, as Pence noted, um, Harris also promised to ban fracking uh, when she was a candidate. As VP, you get to uh, slink away from unwise stances you took in the past and adopt Biden's instead. I, you know, I always think the, the virtue of Bernie's Medicare for All campaign is precisely because some aspects of it were politically controversial. It actually gets Republicans into an extended argument about healthcare policy, right? In which, like, Bernie's view, you know, which is, I think, basically my view, is that, like, everybody should have healthcare. And the government should make it the case that everybody has health care and that the easiest way for the government to make it the case that everybody has health care is for the government to insure everybody. And that like, yes, that will mean that you are making monetary payments to the government, but we are all making monetary payments for health care now. Um, it's not the absolute most political safe ground. But you ask like any Democrat, right? Like all the Democrats running in the toughest races in the world, and like they really want to be in an argument about health care. 
Like that's that's like the topic that Democrats are trusted on. And to me, the advantage of Bernie's kind of like go big on that subject is that it's a it's an argument where the Democratic Party is the trusted party. It's the argument where Democrats argument like is sound. And critically, it's the argument. I mean, you you noted this. um, I don't know if it was in a piece or, or just online, but it's like Republicans don't want to own up to what their view of healthcare is, like in a really profound way, you know? And it, to the extent that you're in a debate about that, about healthcare and, and values, you know, I think it's a kind of a, a winning strategy. Um, a lot of the other Sanders stuff, you know, is, is, a, is a tough one. But frankly, it was... It's Biden who was actually the outlier in, like, not wanting to decriminalize unauthorized border crossing, in not wanting to ban fracking. Uh, One reason that I was more pro-Sanders than, uh, in retrospect, I think I should have been, is that I really wrote Biden off, and I thought that Sanders would be a stronger contender than, for example, um, Harris or... um, Julian Castro, some of the other people who are out there. So I I think it's interesting, right? The other thing that that Sanders does, which I do think is strong, and that Elizabeth Warren really did as well, is articulate the idea that the political arena has like bigger stakes than which of the two people up on the stage is going to win. Um, And and Warren, in some ways, I think is like the most pure... um, (laughs) exemplar of this, right? But, like, she's always talking about, like, power, right? And, like, and like, what are we doing here in politics? And why does this matter? Um, and I don't think, you know, she took a lot of positions that would have been tough in an election. But I think that it's important to try to sort of drag back to those thematic topics that, like, Pence was saying a lot of stuff up there that wasn't true. Um, and something that you want to do when you're faced with somebody who's lying like that is like try to explain like 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 why are they lying? Like what is happening here? What is our theory of the dynamic that's that's going on here? And you know, as you say, right, like it's not it's not like inexplicable that Harris is much stronger talking about some issues than she is talking about big picture economics. Like that's not, she, she was, uh, she run a tough primary as a district attorney in San Francisco. She had two terms as attorney general of California. She dealt with a lot of topics, but like basically not like taxing and spending, but that's so central to what American politics like actually is, right? And I thought Trump did a really good job in the 2016 campaign of obscuring that fact, right? Of obscuring the reality that like in a dollars and cents way, what was at stake in that election was will multimillionaires receive gigantic tax cuts? Because like that's what Trump has done, right? He delivered a uh, unfathomably large windfall to heirs to billion-dollar fortunes. Um, That's like, he passed one piece of legislation, and that's what it did. Uh, There's a lot of other stuff happening. Like, it's good to talk about all the things that happen in in the universe, but it is so core uh, to what's going on, and to not really uh, speak about it. But actually, we, we should pivot, but like, well, I, I want to say one last thing on this before we pivot on this, which is because okay, yeah. the tax cuts thing was, I, th- I think, an interesting moment in the debate. And it was, a, in my view, one of Harris's weakest moments where Pence somehow what, – what Pence did very well in the debate last night was 
and this is an old like talk radio thing, which he's a talk radio guy, and, and so it's why he's often good at this. But he will frame a question on the most unpopular part of his opponent's agenda. He's like, well, do you or don't you, right? Like take this whole big issue and then like, do you or don't you? And one of the ones he he did last night was on the tax cuts, um, you know, that Biden is going to repeal all of the tax cuts. And that means he's going to raise taxes on, on, on middle class people. And Harris often would kind of accept his frames and then argue that he was lying, which when you're, you know, unfortunately, in these kinds of debates when the moderation is this uh, passive. Um, if you accept the opponent's frame, you often end up in a, in a tricky spot. So she was like, no, you know, Biden said a number of times he won't raise tax on people making more than 400000 But this is something that I always thought um, Warren was unbelievably effective in with her, you know, a two-cent wealth tax could buy these like 80 great things in American politics. And something that uh, on a number of issues, uh, the Biden-Harris ticket have obscenely popular plans. Like if you poll the structure of their Obamacare expansion plan, it is not by any means my ideal plan, but like it is exactly in the sweet spot of what people say they want. It's like a big public option. It doesn't destabilize things. Like it, it improves subsidies. Like everything that polls well is in that plan and nothing that doesn't poll well is in that plan. And, and similarly, Dylan Matthews, our colleague, did a great piece uh, just the other day showing that if you put together uh, some of the very big anti-poverty plans that Biden and Harris have jointly uh, put forward, you and, and you do a, a, an independent assessment of it, it would cut adult poverty by 50% and child poverty by 74%. Like, that is huge, right? Uh, plans that could cut poverty by that much in this country. And the, the thing that I sort of wished I had heard more was simply about the, like, good policies that those two have that are not the hot button issues in American politics. Biden really tried in his debate, but he just explains his health care plan so badly. And he was so like thrown off by Donald Trump interrupting every two seconds. Like you would really think after 26 Democratic debates or whatever it was where they argued about health care, Biden would have that one down to like an unbelievably sharp rap, but he just doesn't. Um, and then I like Biden and Harris have both brought up in the Amy Coney Barrett sections, Obamacare, and how Barrett might um, join other conservatives on the court to strike down Obamacare. That is clearly polling as an unbelievably potent attack against Barrett for the Democrats. Um, and it really shows, I did write a piece on this, the changing fortunes of Obamacare, which now in a recent morning consult poll, 62% of Americans said they support. Um, people really don't want it repealed. Mike Pence was up there last night saying, the American people remember Obamacare, and it was a disaster. And it's like, Obamacare is still here and it has majority support. It is 20 points roughly more popular than Donald Trump. And so like Obamacare has become a really strong hand for Democrats to play. And that's a place where it would have been nice to see Harris and frankly, for that matter, Biden force uh, Pence and, and, and Trump into like the Democrats frame a bit. What keeps happening is they try to do this and then Pence or Trump say, we have a plan to cover everybody and like protect pre-existing conditions and they don't. And it's very predictable that they're going to lie and being able to call them on that lie and like force them into like some corners of this issue where they actually have to talk about like how they would do any of this would be very valuable. Like Democrats seem to know healthcare is a winning issue for them, but this particular ticket has not figured out how to talk about healthcare in a clear way. And like that is something I'd really like to see them correct. So I totally agree. Um, so uh, let, let's take a break because then like uh, on the subject of like not talking about the, the good stuff in the agenda, they didn't talk at all about the proximate standoff in Congress, which is actually interesting and, and important to people. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So, you know, as people will probably remember, uh, months and months ago, uh, Congress passed and Donald Trump signed the CARES Act, which uh, it spent like a lot of money um, on a lot of stuff. It really helped people get through the sky-high unemployment. It meant that even though uh, joblessness got to nearly Great Depression levels, we did not have, you know, the kinds of huge collapse in living standards that you might associate with that. Uh, But CARES has now expired. Um, Permanent unemployment, like actual loss of jobs, as opposed to just furlough because, you know, your restaurant is closed temporarily, is going up. And even though we are set to get a very strong uh, GDP number right before the election uh, because because of businesses reopening, I think it's pretty clear that the actual underlying state of the economy is getting weaker as people now do not have money in their pockets uh, to go to go kind of do things. And Democrats way back in May passed a kind of like stimulus too that they called the Heroes Act that it extended a bunch of CARES stuff and it also wanted to give a bunch of money to state and local governments, which didn't get into CARES. Um, Republicans have not wanted to agree to that, uh, but have also been, they've been sort of stuck between saying, 
okay, I really do want to stimulate the economy, but I just have a specific objection to the state and local aid thing, in which case you could probably get a deal done, right? There's there's like always a way to get to yes, I think, on the Hill, if you really want to do a deal. And between saying they actually don't want to stimulate the economy, and it seems like Trump earlier this week seems to have accidentally aligned himself with the view that they actually don't want to stimulate the economy at all. And he said he was shutting down negotiations and we won't deal with this until after the election. And ever since then, he's sort of been trying to sheepishly walk it back. Uh, but it seems like like the election is really close now and we are going to head in. It's bizarre. Like we're going to head into an election with a decelerating economy, even as the opposition party has been like begging the president to do something to help himself. I mean, to help the American people out, but he would be helping himself by helping the American people out. And it's not getting done. And it's one of these things where it both illustrates that Trump is not good at politics, but also that it's bad. Like, it's bad for America to have a president who has such a poor sort of command over what's happening. Like, you you want, at times like this, the president of the United States to rise above the petty ideological hang-ups of Rand Paul or Mitch McConnell's narrow-minded focus on caucus solidarity and, like, get a deal done so that people are not losing their livelihoods. Um, and, and it would boost his numbers, you know, which I would find regrettable because I don't like him, but like it would boost his numbers for the best possible reason. And instead, instead we're, we're like slumping toward a Biden landslide, but also toward a genuine like wintertime catastrophe for people. So it's a bunch of uh, pieces in this. And I, and I want to go through a little bit more of the negotiations because I think they're telling. So, One of the things to note here as a big picture point is that the Republican Party is factionalized on the issue of further economic support. And what you would normally expect here is that the president of the United States, in this case a Republican, would act as party leader and functionally either negotiate a settlement between the factions or impose his will upon the factions and say, look, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, I know some of you don't like this, but this is what we're going to do. And Donald Trump, because he never does that, because he's very checked out on these policy issues and, and and jumps around all the time, has not brought any peace to the factions. And as you say, even this week, he has like been all over the map. Like one day saying, I'm calling off the negotiations, another day saying, I'll sign a bill on checks immediately if you send it. So what has happened here is that there, the, as you say, Democrats passed, I think it's like the roughly three and a half trillion dollar Heroes Act. And then a series of months go by with nothing. I mean, it's not that Mitch McConnell passes an alternative bill. They do nothing. Um, Then what happens is you end up in these negotiations between Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, And Mnuchin is like understood to want to get a deal done and to not really care that much about what it is. But so Pelosi agrees to come down on the number a bit. So she she comes back with a $2.2 trillion bill. So, okay, 3.5 is too high for the Republicans. Um, And then at some point there is like talk of Donald Trump will go up to 1.6. And it's never clear why on any of these things. Like Donald Trump wants to stop at 1.6. He doesn't care about spending money. Um, Jay Powell, the the Federal Reserve chair is like out there begging Congress to spend money, like swearing they're going to keep interest rates low. But it becomes like 1.6. Meanwhile, McConnell and the Senate Republicans are saying they probably can't even pass 1.6, even if you did get that. And they pass, I, I forget the exact number, I think it's like a 650 or $750 billion bill. 
but it doesn't include like any of the things Democrats want. And it's important to say Democrats aren't playing like the levels of hardball that progressives wanted them to play here, which had some things like like universal vote by mail um, and like my big thing, automatic stabilizers. Like what they're saying is that we need to have state and local aid because city because you're going to have mass unemployment and mass service cuts because um, city and state governments are going to collapse um, in terms of their revenue streams, which is true and is happening. And so they're not like Pelosi is not carving out an incredibly hardline position here. She's just carving out an, a position where there are certain uh, priorities Democrats have and they need to be in the bill. Meanwhile, um, Republicans have gotten themselves into the idea that it's a blue state bailout, and though in, in, in fact this is actually happening to all states. So it's this very weird dynamic, but, but an important piece of it, and, and you pointed this out in an article you wrote too, Matt, is that it is not clear McConnell can pass anything. Um, and Donald Trump, meanwhile, is not weighing in to pass anything. It isn't clear at all what he wants. And he has certainly had no consistent ledge strategy coming out of the White House to force Republicans to fall in line behind it. So they're just pinballing around in this crazy way as mass human suffering mounts. And Mike Pence talks, talks about a V-shaped recovery at the VP debate. There are a lot of reasons Republicans are acting this way. I've done a bunch of reporting on this, and you get all kinds of weird things. A, bunch, uh, a number of Republicans are certain there's going to be another Tea Party after Donald Trump loses, and they don't want to be caught on the wrong side of it. Um, a number of Republicans like want to be the leaders of like true conservatives uh, post-Trump uh, and, and maybe run for president on that ground um, in 2024. And so like they feel that this might end up being like a TARP vote, and they don't want to be like have voted for TARP and hurt their 2024 ambitions. There's like a bunch of weird happening, but a lot of it actually reflects a belief that on the one hand, Donald Trump isn't strong now, and on the other hand, he isn't likely to be around later. And so Republicans are sort of reverting to a kind of jockeying that has made any kind of negotiating here uh, impossible and is going to really potentially hurt their uh, political prospects in this election, which is coming up right now. But this is also where the fact that neither Donald Trump nor Mitch McConnell has strong opinions about public policy really, I think hurts Republicans, right? Because the way you would get a deal done here is, okay, so Republicans, they don't like the state and local aid idea, right? So they can call it a blue state bailout. They can call it what a, whatever you want, but like, they just don't like it. They don't, they don't believe state government should do things. Um, but so if there was something that they did believe in, you know what I mean? Like if there was something they really wanted to do, because state and local aid is very important to House Democrats. If they were like, OK, here's Republicans big idea for fixing the economy, you could compromise on doing both of those things. Right. Like that's how you would get stuff done, because there's no credible theory from Republicans by which giving extra money to state governments is going to cripple the economy. It, it, you know, in, in that sense, it's different from the $600 bonus unemployment insurance, which, like, I, I think Republicans are wrong to say that that destroyed people's incentives and worsened the economy. But, like, that is what they think about it. Uh, they don't have a strongly founded objection to the state and local government aid. They just don't like it. But then there's nothing that they want Right. So there's nothing they can put on the table. And, and I've talked to people, um, you know, involved in this from the from the Treasury side. And it's like they want Republicans to get behind making the, the full expensing provision of the Trump tax cut permanent. 
right? That's an idea that they strongly believe in as bolstering economic growth. But it's not an idea that, like, you have ever heard Mike Pence or Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell talk about, right? Like, they don't know that this is the thing that their own treasury team thinks is a really good idea. They're pretty good at lying about what's in the Trump tax bill, but not at all comfortable, like, describing why they think it's... Like, you should read a Dylan Matthews article on Vox, which, like, explains why conservatives think this legislation is a good idea. But it's not something their top politicians have ever been good at articulating. Uh, Paul Ryan is gone. Um McCarthy is not involved in these negotiations in a central way. He's also not a like engaged policy player. And it's a very um like it's just a problematic situation from an actual governance of the country story. It's normal for and we should we should mention Mark Meadows here because he's been very important in that part of it too. Yeah. Well, so Meadows um who knows what Mark Meadows like? You know, so Meadows is a right wing guy, right? Like he's a he's a Tea Party guy, a Freedom Caucus guy, and he doesn't seem to want to get anything done, as, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, which is bad on its own terms, uh, but it's really tricky to have. It's normal for somebody in McConnell's position to not really be a particularly deep policy thinker, because uh, to be a, an effective congressional leader, you need to be a little bit agnostic about what you actually do. But there's nobody leading on policy in the Republican Party now. And it means it's hard to make a deal because like, you can only make deals with people who have things that they want. Well, you can also only make deals with people who stick to a particular deal once it is made. And I do a lot of reporting on the legislating dynamics around the White House and this Congress. And and this is something that from the outside, I don't know how clear its effect is, but inside it is almost the only thing I ever hear about. And that is simply that it is not just Democrats who do not really trust Donald Trump to make a deal, but very importantly, Republicans do not either. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that is keeping congressional Republicans from coming up with and then executing a consistent strategy on this, like either a strategy of no, right, Nancy Pelosi is a big spender who is terrible, or a strategy of here is our alternative or whatever it might be, is the ongoing fear that Trump will cut their knees out from under them like any day that, and then he might even then go back to supporting them the next day, but that he will not back them up. And I covered, you know, so many stimulus rounds in the Obama White House, and there were really big fights among the Democrats about what to do. But what would eventually happen is something that like Jeff Bezos uh, in, in like framed um, in an Amazon letter once is disagree and commit. Like at some point, the decider, usually in this case, President Obama, would he would have heard from Harry Reid and he would have heard from Nancy Pelosi and he would have heard from Jason Furman, his chief economist, and he would have heard from, you know, Larry Summers and, and kind of go on down the line, you know, and all and a bunch of these people might have had different ideas on what to do. But at some point, the White House would come up with a decision of what it is they were going to do. And then like everybody would try to do that. And there would be a strategy oriented towards getting that done. And it may or may not work. Like everybody was on board and that created information that every other congressional Democrat used to structure their strategies as well. And it is just a haze of chaos on the Republican side. McConnell 
is not a policy thinker and never has been. Um, as you say, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have that kind of credibility in the House, and also the House Republicans don't really matter. But the White House is internally divided in a very profound way. Mnuchin is functionally a pragmatist with weak views about policy. Donald Trump is functionally a narcissist who doesn't care about policy. And like one thing that has just never been part of his reelection strategy is governing. He just does not seem to me to have a theory of how governing would play into his reelection strategy. He's got a lot of ideas about messaging and positioning and fighting and arguing and, and, and all kinds of other branding things, but not actually governing, not like here's what we need to get done to get reelected. Meadows is a guy who functionally comes out of the Republican Party's like caucus of no, very, very good at opposing things, basically good at a nihilistic approach to politics, so a politics of negation, but does not build, does not pass big pieces of legislation, has never been successful at that. Um, Pence is interesting because I think in another world, Pence would sort of be the decider on this kind of thing. Like you could very much imagine, and on, on many issues, I think it functionally has been the case, that Pence would operate as like the governing power center in the White House because Donald Trump would outsource it to him. But Pence is, you know, I think a little bit between the, the Meadows and, and Mnuchin worlds here and just doesn't seem that engaged. Uh, he's got people who are engaged, but there is simply at this point a recognition that Donald Trump is not going to make a decision and stick to it. And in the absence of that happening, Republicans are not going to have a policy. And so they bounce around to different messages from blue state bailouts to payroll tax cuts to, you know, Nancy Pelosi's not really a, a serious negotiating partner or whatever it might be. But in the end, the issue is that you can't make a deal when the leader of the party won't make a deal. Um, and Donald Trump, like, he will criticize deals and he will bounce around between things that he says he wants, but nobody really knows what he wants because he doesn't and it changes. Um, I'll, I'll say this one last thing on him. It's something that Yuval Levin from the American Enterprise Institute told me now a couple of years ago, but I've also said it's a very important um, insight, which is that when Trump ran for office in 2016, what a lot of people thought about him was that he wasn't a traditional Republican, and even many of his, like, he wasn't like that learned on policy, Lord knows, but they did incredibly strong guttural instincts about things that, like, you know, that in his in his gut, it was like a no, yes, yes, no, you know, and, and that he would end up pushing those. And that the thing that surprised a lot of Republicans about Trump, and in fact, a lot of people about Trump, is that for all of the brashness and brazenness with which he expresses his opinions, he's actually incredibly fluid. And so what he believed on Tuesday is not what he'll believe on Wednesday. Um, the last person he talked to is very important. And then because he will, like, as soon as he has a new thought on his head, tweet it out as opposed to like calling a meeting and saying, hey, I just heard this from Mitch McConnell. What do you guys think? Should we change our strategy? That it then like destabilizes everybody else. So like that, that essential fluidity in Trump, like the fact that he is incredibly unstable. He's like, I think Schumer once called him. Um, it's like nailing jello to the wall negotiating with Donald Trump. The fact that he is unstable so much as he presents as having very strong views is like the essential thing that keeps um, any deals from getting made. Yes, I completely agree. Uh, let's take let's take our second break, and I want to think about you know what what do we have going forward here.
So it seems like, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But if anything does happen, it's likely to take the form of small bills, right? Trump is maybe going to get behind a sector-specific rescue for the airline industry, something like that. Uh, And so it means that we could be looking at a situation where, you know, if Trump loses, uh, we've still got three to four months uh, between now and when Biden would take over, room for significant kind of economic deterioration. And then once again, needing to sort of start off the bat with uh, an economic rescue bill. And a big kind of immediate question is going to be, does Biden do what Obama did in 2009 and accept the premise that he needs a 60-vote bipartisan bill? Or does he uh, use a reconciliation bill? Or does he do the filibuster? Um, Because there's not a lot of time on a topic like this. Like, Biden's stated position on all this is that he thinks Republicans are going to be reasonable, but we have to see what happens. And it's like a totally good answer, I think, if you're just listening and not really thinking about the situation. But if unemployment is rising and stuff by by late January and people are getting evicted and people are having trouble, you know, heating their homes and eating and state governments are laying off teachers. Like, you can't just have a months-long bargaining process with, I don't even know who you would bargain with um, in in the Senate GOP caucus. You have to decide, like, what you want to do and do it pretty fast, especially since the text of the HEROES Act is just kind of sitting there, right, like, ready to be copy and pasted. Um, And I think, you know, it, it... I I think the wise move would be for all the leaders among congressional Democrats to be working now on budget resolution and reconciliation instructions and sort of getting the getting the gears going for a a huge reconciliation bill um, to sort of short circuit the whole filibuster conversation. I mean, you know that I think the wise move would be just get rid of the filibuster when they when they start up. I do want to note something. I do want to note one one thing from both the first presidential debate and the VP debate, because I think it's really important. At the first presidential debate, uh, Biden was asked by Chris Wallace, would he get rid of the filibuster? And Biden, who had spent like the entire night and would go on to spend the rest of the night happily telling Trump all things he didn't support, right? Joe Biden does not support banning fracking. He does not support these tax increases. He will not abolish private insurance. He will not defund the police simply refused to say that he would not get rid of the filibuster, simply refused to say he would not court pack. Um, didn't say, like, we'll have to look at it like, like I disagree with both of those ideas, but, you know, we can't fully take them off the table till the Republican. He just left it completely open in a very unusual move for him, actually. And then uh, last night, the same thing happened with Harris. She was asked about court packing, and she simply refused to say. Um, I don't think she refused to say like in a, like, I thought they could have like turned that around a little bit better, but nevertheless, like the refusal of Biden and Harris 
to take a position on these questions is very, very, very interesting because it is not their normal play. They do not say this on other progressive ideas or progressive stratagems. They usually are happy to disavow things they're not going to do. So one is they're, they're leaving quite a bit of strategic flexibility here. I still think it is unlikely they do either thing, but it is very clear they want the possibility of doing either or both things as leverage. Um, and I think the way they imagine this playing out is by making it clear they really will get rid of the filibuster or potentially pack the court if um, Republicans don't like allow some level of cooperation or reform here. They're hoping to get that cooperation. Um, but if they don't, then the question really becomes, will they do it? I agree with you, too, that the obvious thing right now to be doing for Senate Democrats um, or for House Democrats would be to be writing some of this legislation in advance. And there's just been less prep for a Biden presidency than I would have anticipated seeing at this point. I think the various sides are, are overwhelmed. And I think there also is simply deterioration in uh, working ambition because of coronavirus. People aren't together legislating in the sort of normal ways they, they would be in the normal committee processes. So Congress is acting from a degraded state right now, which I also think is important and somewhat overwhelmed by emergency. But nevertheless, this question of what is the first couple of bills and how quickly can they move them is really important. And Joe Biden is going to face what I think is going to be the central question of his first term if he's not if he's elected very quickly, which is, do you let Republicans run out the clock on you or not? Do you allow for a lengthy negotiating process that ultimately goes nowhere? And then maybe at the end, you do it through budget reconciliation or even you do get rid of the filibuster, but it's not until 16 months into your term and you've gotten basically nothing done. Or do you come in and you're like, listen, we have three weeks to talk this out. I would love to come to a deal. I'm willing to, like, if you give me a, a counter proposal here, I will take it very seriously. But if we don't come to a deal, we're moving. And I would, I would really stress that time is a key thing there. Uh, it's not optionality, it's time. And if they don't move fast, they are just like, this is like a very normal Republican, and for that matter, opposition strategy, to simply use time against the, the, the governing party. Um, and my question really is how much the Biden group is thinking about time and sequencing. And this is where, you know, you, you mentioned this before, that like, Biden is not a great uh, discusser of the Joe Biden policy agenda. Um, you know, not on healthcare, but like not really on on much of anything. I mean, he communicates empathy incredibly well. He seems to have learned a lot about coronavirus, but it's like, yeah, I mean, there's political questions about it, but it's like substantively, I am very excited about the Joe Biden policy agenda. Right. Like, I think that effectuating a 70 percent cut in child poverty would be a really big deal. Um, I think that unlocking like a huge new era of house building um, would be a really big deal. I think there's like a lot of good, good stuff in here, more than he gets credit for from from the left. Uh, but you have to actually do it. Right. And, and that means, as you're saying, like you have to attack it with some urgency, I think, because it's just not. I, I think even I think you could be not totally pessimistic about the possibility of getting some stuff done on a bipartisan basis. But like, obviously, if Republicans wanted to significantly increase taxes on the wealthy and redistribute that income to people in the bottom half of the income distribution, like they would have done that already. They've, they've had plenty of opportunities to say yes to that deal. And like, we know they, they really don't want to do it. Uh, but Democrats are going to have the votes to do it. 
I think more likely than not. Uh, They are able to do it through reconciliation. They are able to change the filibuster if they want to. And if they themselves decide that it's important to solve these big national problems, and they're popular, you know, there's some stuff where I think you can say the filibuster rule is saving moderate Democrats from the bases uh, politically dicey demands. But like, that's just not true of Biden's economic program. It was written by very politically cautious people uh, to be like super duper optimized for like, this stuff is going to happen. People will hear about it. They'll say, yeah, that sounds fine. It'll roll out. People will have a lot more money. They will like that. And to me, it's like Biden should do that stuff. Like, he should try to be a very successful president who passes a lot of laws and transforms people's lives for the better. And it's never been super clear to me that he is as emotionally invested in that idea as, like, I am. Um, I It's interesting that he kind of dangles on, on the filibuster, as, as you say. But, like, there's going to be incredible problems in people's... Um, economic lives, I think, by January, like over and above the health toll of of the pandemic. And there's really not going to be any time to waste. Like the time to get this deal done on stimulus was like two months ago. And we're talking about three, four months in in the future. And I, I hope that if if Biden wins, we, we start hearing urgency during the transition process. Uh, Something I I bet a lot of people don't remember is that, like, in 2008 and 2007 even, Democrats in Congress did a lot of work to lay the groundwork for the Affordable Care Act. And, like, even so, it took a long time. And the kind of inactivity in Congress makes me, like, it makes me wonder. Like, you ask people, you're like, what are you guys working on? And it's like, nothing. We're We're not doing anything. And I don't know, man. Like, that's just not how... It's not how the system has traditionally functioned. I think it's a good place to close, although I do want to say for future weeds, I have a lot of concerns about even if Biden wins, what that lame duck period is going to look like. And uh, I want to put a pin in that and come back to it. Yes, that is a alarming. I mean, there, there's these debate questions about like, will there be a peaceful transition of power? But it's like the the actual bar is much higher than like, will there be violence Right. Right. It's like it's like how it's hard, right, to like have two different administrations and public health and career people and political people. And it's like, uh, is there going to be active, ongoing cooperation from the Trump administration? And like, it it doesn't seem like there will be, which raises a we, we should definitely do an episode on that. Well, that'll be that'll be coming soon. Yes, future weeds. Okay, um, so thanks, Ezra. Thanks to our uh, producers and sponsors, as always. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday with, at long last, the winner of the white paper lottery. We'll get his paper discussed. It's it's going to be a big one. Um, all right, bye. <laughs>